Hi, this is my second uh, uh, recording that I'm doing and new experience for me. So bear with me as I as I hopefully get better as I do these. But um, so on Mondays, I am writing about uh, a book that I'm that, that I've actually written and almost finished. And it's called A Dangerous Woman exposing the dark underbelly of the nonprofit world and how council culture came for me. So this is uh, the introduction to that book, and I'm just going to read it here uh, now. I've decided to start my writing on Substack with the story of my friendship with Sylvia Sanchez. It's part of a book I've been writing called A Dangerous Woman, about my experiences starting Inside Out Writers, a creative writing program for incarcerated youth in Los Angeles, and the hypocritical way nonprofits are used by the elite to further their agendas. I start with our friendship because it speaks to the current situation of cancel culture, it is alarming to see how dissenting voices are being silenced. My vision for IOW was to give voice to youth who would otherwise never have a chance to have their voices heard. IOW played a valuable role in changing perceptions of incarcerated youth. It started with me teaching one class a week as a volunteer and went on to involve many amazing writers teaching classes, the publication of our students' writings, and even led to changing some of the laws regarding youth being tried as adults. At the time I started IOW, I was 40 years old. I considered myself far more a liberal than a conservative, although I have always resisted such labels. I never dreamed that by creating such a nonprofit, I would incur the wrath of the powerful liberals who went on to take it over and who canceled me. I met Sylvia in 1996. She was in my first group of girls at Central Juvenile Hall. I started with a group of eight girls, all facing life sentences for serious crimes. I wanted to help them because, for reasons I will explain later, in the post, I knew what it felt like to be imprisoned and not able to find a way out. I couldn't dare compare myself and Sylvia like that now, saying we are more alike than different. There is no longer any nuance allowed, no finding out anyone's life story, no judging a person by their character, by years and years of actions. It is all down to appearance and words that are used. Accusations made by the liberal elite do not require proof. It really does feel like a new religion, and I already knew all about that from my childhood. Back in the mid-1990s, no one was talking about cancel culture. Yes, I was one of those white women who wanted to do some good in the world. And in fact, I came to be even more uh, looked at in a negative manner because, in fact, my name is Karen. But at that time, nobody was talking about that. I didn't think about all of that in those days. It was a simple thing. I just wanted to teach, and I have my personal reasons based on my past experiences. We seem to have forgotten that we are all unique and no one should be reduced to the color of their skin or that because of their skin is a certain shade, they therefore must belong to a certain social class or have a certain worldview. It was only later that I learned I should actually be ashamed by my desire to start a writing program. <laughs> 
And even though it was successful and went on to help thousands of young people, that I should never have done it in the first place. In fact, history was changed and I was struck out as if I had never existed in the first place. The irony, of course, was that the very people canceling me were from the highest caste of white liberal American society. They were the board members of IOW. Some were socialites, married to powerful men, while others were the Hollywood elite or had aspirations to be. I was canceled at the end of 2005, long before this whole frenzy had taken hold, but it wasn't until recently that I realized what had happened to me with this beautiful little nonprofit, and it was a perfect example of what is happening today. It really all came home to me on November 6, 2016, the night Donald Trump became president. After spending more than 20 years in prison, that was the day Sylvia was released. I was so excited, so overwhelmed with happiness for her. It was a story I wanted to write about, and I approached the Washington Post. The story of our friendship over all those years was inspiring. It crossed racial and cultural boundaries. It should be told. The editor I approached really liked the story. However, I was told I was not the person to write it. I was a white woman. She suggested I give her the contact information for Sylvia and all my notes, and she would find a writer for it. I was aghast. Even though Sylvia and I had been friends for more than 20 years, and I knew her better than any other writer ever could, I could not write about her, even in the context of telling my own story with her as being a part of it, simply because I was white. I asked for advice from a very large group of women writers on Facebook that's supposed to be a supportive place. I naively wrote a post about how shocked I had been with this editor, and did anyone have a suggestion of where else I might approach? I quickly learned there are certain things you can say and certain things you cannot say as a white woman. It doesn't matter how you actually live your life. It doesn't matter if no one knows anything about your life. You will be judged by whether or not you use the right words that are appropriate for the shame of your whiteness. And if you don't toe the line, your entire life can be destroyed, destroyed by the words that are then used against you. It hadn't been enough that the liberal elite of Hollywood had canceled me years previously. Now I had to be told I could not even be a writer telling my own experiences because my experiences were despicable. To be fair, there were a few polite comments in this uh, on this Facebook page that has thousands of, of uh, writers on it and editors as well. And then the bullying started. I was viciously attacked for daring to suggest I wanted to write such a story. Actually, by doing so, I was silencing Sylvia and making it all about me. I was the classic white savior selfishly trying to assuage my white guilt. Not only was I ruining Sylvia's life, which I have no idea how, but the fact that I had so brazenly started the writing program in the first place meant that I had probably destroyed the lives of thousands of youth rather than helped them. I was a dangerous, evil person. In fact, I had probably taken away the opportunity for a person of color to start a writing program by doing it myself. In another post during the pandemic, I was called other things as well as a pasty-faced and plague-ridden. As a white woman, you cannot dare suggest you might want to help anyone. And you certainly can't use the word save. 
In fact, it was inappropriate that I had befriended Sylvia in the first place. She had been 16 when I met her, and I had been 40. Surely there was something creepy about that? The suggestion was made that I should be investigated as a pedophile. It went on and on. In this group, the rules are you cannot delete a post. You have to leave it there, and they can just keep on attacking you. And if you push back, one of those phrases that I find so annoying, that just proves even further that you aren't willing to do the work needed to realize your white fragility and toxicity. It was interesting and somewhat ironic that many of the responders were white and not a single one of them was interested in Sylvia's opinion on the matter. In fact, it was as if she was of no consequence as well. Not only did these people condemn me, but they would have condemned her if she hadn't agreed with their point of view. Never mind that we were friends and she trusted me for that reason to tell her story. And in fact, this section is only one part of a bigger tale. As a result, I became discouraged and I shelved the project until now. I know of so many writers who have been canceled like this, not only as writers, but people in all walks of life. If you say the wrong thing, you can lose your job, your reputation, your family, and so on. I've never had a problem speaking out. All I care about is that I speak honestly and respectfully, and people can do what they want with it. So I start here on the night of November 6, 2016. The country was on the verge of chaos, angered that this orange man bad had been elected, or so it seemed he would be. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't vote for Clinton. I found myself thinking Trump was a lesser of two evils. The thought appalled me. Almost all my friends were liberals. I kept my thoughts to myself. Clinton was despicable to me, a warmonger and a career politician who could not be trusted. I thought if she was elected, we would end up in more wars. I think I was right about that. What Trump accomplished with foreign policy was nothing short of miraculous. I lived in the Middle East. I came from a conservative background. I understood he was in that regard. On the one hand, people said he was a white supremacist and anti-Semite. On the other hand, they said he was betraying the United States to Russia. He couldn't be both. And as it turned out, he was neither. Maybe some people will stop reading right here. So be it. All I can do is say that those are my opinions, those were my opinions at the time, and if you continue on, you might come to understand why. But of course, back then, Sylvia was in juvenile hall, and none of this had happened yet. Here is a letter Sylvia wrote to me shortly before she left Central Juvenile Hall for prison. I believe it was in 1999. Below that are some reflections that I wrote shortly after that, talking about all that Sylvia achieved while she was in juvenile hall. I didn't know what the future held when I wrote this. I didn't know that so many years later, Sylvia would be released and would go on to live a fulfilling life, reunited with her family and with the woman she had fallen in love with while in prison. They are together until this day. Here is Sylvia's letter to me from so long ago. Dear Karen, hello, it's me, Sylvia. I decided to write you this letter to say goodbye. Yes, my time has come. I hardly cry. I haven't cried for a long time. But today I shed some tears as my friends brought memories of my trial and the last day I got convicted. That was the worst day of my incarceration, and I cried like a baby all night. I remember my friend, Ochoa, bringing me a cup of water. I showered right after I came from court, and me and Ochoa stood inside the bathroom crying. She was telling me she wanted to do some of my time for me. Then we had to come out of the bathroom because they had cake and ice cream. 
It was my 18th birthday, but I was too sad to celebrate. The road is long. It might take me years. I might struggle, fall a couple of times, but I'll pick myself up. I know I must move on with my life and go to prison. At least then I will know my release date and feel that one day I'll be home. I'm sad because I'm leaving everybody behind. This has been my home for four years. I grew up here. Well, Karen, I'm going to let you go for now. Take care and thanks for everything. Love always, Sylvia Sanchez. Not long after her 20th birthday, Sylvia gave the commencement speech at the Central Juvenile Hall graduation, speaking with eloquence and conviction. When she first entered Juvenile Hall at 16, if anyone would have told her she would do such a thing, she would have dismissed them with disdain. Now I looked at her across the crowd outside the chapel, a tiny 20-year-old woman in a cap and gown, talking and smiling with a group of people, and I was so proud and happy for all she had achieved. I went over and gave her a hug, and then she told me the words I had been dreading. Karen, I'm leaving for prison on Tuesday. I got my clearance. The judge signed my order. My first reaction was to say, no, I can fix it. Make the judge revoke the order. You haven't finished your tattoo removal. But I knew that wasn't what Sylvia wanted. Should I stop fighting? No more battles, I said. She nodded. I'm ready to go. I mean, it's not what I want for my life, but I've been here long enough. Stubbornly, I held on. But Sylvia, look at your face, your hands. You'll be in for a long time. I know you're getting impatient, but it's not going to be better there, and you haven't finished what you started with your tattoo removals. Yeah, but they don't want me here anymore. They want me out, and I'm ready. I could see she had closed off the possibility of staying. She wanted to get on with her sentence. She had anticipated it long enough. Sometimes the anticipation of an evil can become worse than the evil itself. Still, it was maddening, over a year of treatments, and those stubborn tattoos on her face didn't seem to look much different than they had in the beginning. It's because they're homemade, the girls had explained to me. The ink is so concentrated. The tattoos on Sylvia's arms had virtually disappeared, but the two and three on her fingers was a ghost of its former self, visible still. And then, of course, the unbearable sight that was always there, peeking out from under the orange top, Sylvia loves Gerardo as black as ever, untouched by the laser. Won't it be dangerous to go to prison with that 213 faded so that everyone will know you were trying to get it off? She shook her head. No, it isn't like that. I'll be okay. So that morning under the trees outside the chapel, sipping on bright red fruit punch, Sylvia and I said goodbye with her resigned to her fate and me afraid of letting go. She had been the light in my life, who without even knowing it had exposed the dark corners of my heart and made me face the hardest truths about myself. There were no tears that morning, just a quiet, overwhelming sadness. Perhaps, still being young, Sylvia thought the story had ended, but that would not be the case. There was never an end. My dearest friend, private investigator Casey Cohen, had taught me that. I wish I could say that she lived happily ever after. I wish I could give the appearance that all the loose ends were tied and the future rosy and filled with promise. I wish I could say I slew the dragon and Sylvia won her case, was released, and lived a full, productive life. I wish I could say she met a good man and got married and rode into the sunset. I wish I could say all those things, but those are chapters yet to be fulfilled. 
and the odds are against it. Even if Sylvia had found her knight and rode off into the sunset, the cold light of day would have followed, just as it had when she sat on the beach, coming down from her high and crying into the rising sun. Pain and pleasure, love and hate, good and bad, we can't seem to have one without the other. There are always battles to be fought, and winning doesn't necessarily mean killing the enemy. For now, Sylvia languishes in prison. Her appeals have been denied. One day stretches into the next, just as it has done for years already. A life was taken, and whether or not justice was served, the fact remains that Sylvia did play a small part, and so she must pay. Out of this tragedy, Sylvia has transformed herself into a person who, if she had remained on the street, she might never have become. That is the great dichotomy, the twist of fate. Her tattoos were never completely erased, but she tried through the painful process to cleanse her soul. She graduated from high school with top honors and was chosen as valedictorian, whereas before she had been silent and submissive, never able to stand up to a man. She now stood before a crowded room filled with young people who looked up to her and spoke with courage and conviction. I pray her words will not be forgotten. We all hunger for a vision to carry us through, destined as we are to live by faith, not by sight, and to struggle with mysteries beyond our understanding. This means we all share the same frightening blindness that can cause us to lash out at one another and stumble and fall. Some of us manage to rise above the Malay in the most awe-inspiring and courageous ways. Sylvia is one such person. Just because she has been locked away and deemed unworthy to live amongst the rest of us does not make it right. And just because it is easy to forget her does not mean that we should. If we do not listen to Sylvia and others like her and take their words to heart, then we, as the human race, lose our collective vision. If only we were willing to admit that we don't know anything imprisoned as we are within the confines of our own bodies, how much more likely would we then be to show humility and compassion, to reach out and help others when they stumble and fall, instead of taking delight and grinding them further into the dirt? How would it be if we opened our minds and learned from unlikely sources, embraced our differences, looked into the eyes, and held the hands of those we feared the most? This game of life, as the girls in my writing class called it, is not about winning or losing or grasping for a reward in order to prove we are more worthy than someone else. It is about finding our vision and allowing it to lead us forward by faith from darkness into light, one step at a time. Thank you for listening. This concludes the introduction to A Dangerous Woman.